0: As-salamu everybody. Happy Saturday. Um, welcome to another incredible session, inshallah, on uh, Al-Dupan today, Surah 44. Um, oops, I'm tangled here. So I, I just wanted to share, um, we had another reflection group last night, and I got permission from the Sheikh to share another pop quiz that we got. We have trauma that comes with the pop quiz because they're really difficult and very painful. But they're, they're so good because they're really the questions obviously are intended to ask us questions, to think about things that we would clearly rather be asked um, now and think about now before it's too late. And so we had two questions last night that were of that genre. Um, and so um, one was, if you imagine that now, Halas, you're dead, your time on this earth is over, and you are confronting, um, you know, God asking you what is the, what is the, the one sin um, that you are most scared about being asked about or being held accountable for now that you are on death, you know, you're dead? Um, and that was a very difficult question. Um, and the second question is, um, of all of the good things that you've done in this life, like if, what would you want God to consider in your favor? Um, what is the one thing that you would have done in your life that hopefully would help you know put your book in in good favor um, because this is what you did in in your life so um, it was a very uh, powerful reflection and you know all of these questions again are really intended um, for us to reflect on ourselves and our life, and you know perhaps what we need to do to change, and um, what our opportunities are before it's too late. Um, so, and then the second thing that I wanted to share. Um, first of all, I want to apologize because I get a lot of email. The professor gets a lot of email. People send a lot of questions, really important questions, and we are really, you know, just so. Um, overwhelmed with all kinds of things, especially, you know, the, the time it takes to do, um, you know, two surahs and all of the other things that go on with Project Illumin. So, you know, I, I'm constantly wanting to apologize because I'm not answering email. I'm not keeping up on things that I normally, um, you know, would be better at doing. Um, so I want to first thank you and ask you for your patience. Um, and if you haven't heard from me for a long time, you know, definitely feel free to write again. Um, One of the things that I thought that I wanted to share was an email that I got this week that um, kind of touches on a question that I get often. And so let me read it to you. I fully intend to answer the questions raised here in one way, shape, or form. I first was thinking that I would do it as an email, and I may still do that, but I thought I would first share it here um, so I can talk it through. So as-salamu um, thank you very much for the work you do in supporting the Shaykh and his teachings about the Quran. I'm curious to know whether yourself or the Shaykh considers the hijab, himar, for Muslim women is mandatory, or whether it is mandatory, but leeway is given for those on a journey of self-realization to accept it at their own time and with their own conviction. I am trying not to be judgmental, but find it difficult to share some of your work with close female relatives who have struggled because of their choice of wearing the hijab. They feel that while someone may be intelligent and scholarly, there is no legitimacy or credibility to their voice if they haven't grasped the enormity of a Quranic directive. The answer I most likely will get from them based on experience is, how can someone speak so passionately and intelligently about the Quran when they haven't embodied some of its basic commands? May Allah forgive me and guide me to the right path if my question offends you, and we are all human to feel offended. My apologies in advance." So, um, you know, clearly hijab is one of these issues that um, all Muslim women grapple with, and especially people who are converts. Um, I think female converts have a particularly difficult time, Um, and oftentimes it becomes a barrier to conversion. I mean, certainly in our experience, we've had many people who, fall in love with the thought and fall in love with the Quran, and then they hear from people at the mosque that if they don't convert that they can't become Muslim. i sorry, if they don't wear hijab, they can't convert and become Muslim. So people actually leave, um, which I think is a, an incredible sin, the idea of turning people away from your faith because you have forced them um, into believing that the scarf is something that is um, a mandatory you know almost like a sixth pillar um, and you know um, I remember that back in 1996 shortly after the professor and I met <clears throat> he was teaching at UT Austin this was a huge issue for some of the students there and there was one woman that I remember who was French and she was you know so excited about the, the cron class that the professor was teaching at the time would come to class and just be you know like kind of like how we are here just so excited about what we're hearing and um and so she would seriously think about converting and then she would go to the local mosque which unfortunately was very wahhabi and she would get the very clear message no you have to wear scarf first in order to convert she eventually left she didn't convert she went back to france we don't know what happened to her but we had many conversations and i remember when the the chef would say listen this is an issue of like, you know, the, the tail wagging the dog, right? I mean, we should think about bigger issues before we think about issues like the scarf. So, I you know, there's, there's a lot to be said about this. It's, you know, I mean, after a while it becomes a little bit um, irritating. You know, I'm not, I'm not offended and, you know, um, I think it's an important point of education. Um, And, you know, I've certainly addressed this in other talks that I've given, and so one of the things that I would like to provide is resources. I mean, if if people are watching and they've made it this far and able to listen to me without a scarf, alhamdulillah, thank you. Um, (laughs) But some of the resources that you might want to consider, um, you know, certainly the professor has written about this issue in Search for Beauty, and there are a lot of, you know, um, sites to um, the you know specific verses in the Quran, which address this issue. You know, Is hijab actually a Quranic directive? <clears throat> and then um, in 1996, when the students raised this issue, they really asked if the Sheikh could hold a halakha and talk about the issues and the evidence around the hijab. And so he went through a very lengthy halakha where he actually did go through you know the evidence, um, the, the history, the context, the anthropology, the different legal rulings, all the different things. And it was not to um, make a, a point one way or another, but it was just to lay all the evidence out there and to allow you to come to your own conclusions. And interesting, a lot of the people who raise these questions are are male. Like this this you know um, email came to me it's from a, a gentleman from a he signs himself as husband and father. Um, and I know oftentimes when the sheikh gets this question from males, his answer is well, why why do you care? You're not a woman. You don't wear a scarf. But I mean, not to be you know cheeky about it, but just to say, you know, these are individual, individual decisions that have to be made you know, between a woman and, and her God. Um, and I've also talked about the reasons why I have chosen not to wear hijab um, in several of my introductions. I think if, if anyone's interested, um, you know, they could look up on YouTube, you know, enter, um, put in my name and hijab. Um, and so, and, and sorry, the, this halakha that was done back in 1996 um, is available actually on SoundCloud and also, we are working on preparing it for publication, so you can actually read it as a book. So I am excited to talk about that very soon, inshallah. Um, but so, in order to, um, you know, address this question, I, I thought about many different ways that I could answer the question, and you know, I'll, I'll talk about it more. But you know, because we work here in the spirit of critical thinking, um, you know, I just want to pose a couple of questions back. So, you know, I've been speaking here at the Suli Institute since its founding, which was back in December of 2017. And from the very first halakha we had, I spoke, and every single halakha since then, I've also spoken. And so, I I have to pose the question, you know, if you come to the Suli Institute and you recognize that you're learning from um, a sheikh um, like, you know, Dr. Abul Fadl, and with his wisdom and knowledge. Why do you think and I'm his wife, why do you think I am allowed to speak at the beginning of every halakha without wearing hijab? What does that possibly point to? Either it could be that I'm a sinner and he's just allowing me to sin, or you know, maybe he you know, there's more to this picture, you know, and our our whole point of existence. Is education, critical thinking, dignity, questioning the status quo, understanding—you know—the depth of things—and so I just pose that question to think about: Why do you think he would allow his wife to speak in front of everyone without a scarf? Secondly, um, you know, I guess the the other question is: What does it mean? when we know that our greatest jihad, our greatest struggle, our greatest, you know, point of importance as Muslims is to seek knowledge. And what does it mean when you don't allow yourself knowledge because you're not willing to hear it from a woman without a scarf? And, you know, what, and, and what does that mean when, for example, you go to the doctor and you try to get medical advice? Or you go to, um, you know, a psychologist and you try to get you know, mental health advice, or you try to get tax advice, or you try to get any kind of advice that is of importance in your life that affects you as a Muslim, does that mean that you will only accept knowledge from someone who's wearing a scarf? Um, Just, you know, to throw these questions out there to ponder. Um, and, And what will happen if God says to you, well, you asked specific questions about being a faithful Muslim, and I directed you to the Suli Institute, and I directed you to someone who was focusing on the Quran, and you decided that you didn't want to listen because a woman spoke without wearing a scarf. Like, what is your accountability in that situation? Um, just to throw that out there to think about, and maybe we can talk about it more in, in future future things. Um, so, I, I you know it's a, a very important question because you know one of the things that's very heartbreaking for me is when I hear about people who are considering conversion um, and I and I see people write you know the hardest thing that I have to grapple with in my conversion is the fact that hijab is absolutely mandatory in Islam and that I'm committing a sin as a Muslim when I'm not wearing a scarf even though I have such a serious problem with it and that wearing a scarf shakes my faith. I mean these are the kinds of things that I think are tragic because you know, even the whole idea of converting, like when you think about all the things a person has to overcome, to choose a new religion and to decide to start this journey, uh, all the different things that a person has to change in their life and question and re- revisit and interrogate, to all have it come down to whether or not you wear a scarf is definitely the, the tail wagging the dog, so.
1: Um, to be continued. Thank you, Samuel. Thank you, Samuel. Thank you, Uh, Inshallah, today we will do al Dukhan, which translates to uh, smoke, Dukhan is smoke. And usually um, you see, Inshallah, it's a, it will be a fascinating journey. Um, I want to just uh, because of what Grace said on um, what Grace talked about. One, I I do want to re second. The the point uh, about receiving messages and um, uh, n- n- not being as responsive as I ideally would like to. Um, I-, I get a lot of messages. Um, in you know, in the old days, people had to go through the trouble of writing a letter and getting an envelope and writing the address, putting a stamp. Nowadays, it's as easy as uh, just sending an email. And, um, uh, you know, I often wondered if I had a private secretary, maybe life could have been much easier. But since I don't, uh, keeping up with all the correspondences is really impossible. Uh, But I do feel very bad about it because I I get a lot of messages that I really do want to respond to, and I just can't find enough time, Um, but I I try my best to read everything. uh, And I, you know, so I, I make an effort to eventually respond uh, even if it takes me, um, too long, but I I have received messages that I intended to respond to and I never did. And, um, which I feel bad about, uh, because some of them were, were legitimately, you know, either good questions or very, uh, people expressing what is in their soul and their heart and they deserve the response. Um, so, Surah Al-Dukhan was, as we'll see, it is um, it, it fascinating at so many levels. Uh, the the message is. Um, in many ways, heart-wrenching. I mean, it it really reaches into your soul and um, demands a response from you. It was revealed, most reports, the, the more reliable reports and the majority of reports say that it was revealed right after Surah Taha um and right before Surah to Shara Taha, Abdul Khan and Shara, these three surah, we have we covered Taha, we haven't covered the Shara. Um are surah that interrogate the nature of reality and the way that you deal with the reality that you live in and the way that you understand reality and in many ways form reality and construct reality. Uh, Having been revealed after Taha, that means it was after Sawar that we've covered, like Qaf and Saad, uh, after the after Furqan, after Surat Fatr. <clears throat> and in terms of order of revelation, it was very likely that it's somewhere in the mid-40s. Um, by By one count, it would be number 46 in order of revelation, Uh, or if not 46, it would be 45, 46, 47, Uh, depending on your assessments of er earlier SOR. Okay, so, but in terms of soar we've covered, so it is before, Surat al-Zumar and Surat al-Ghafir and Surat al-Jathiyah. Um, Surat al-Ahqaf, which are Sura that we've covered. Uh, and before, so like Luqman, which we have not covered, or Saba, uh, or al-Shura, or al-Zukhruf. Uh, again, surah that we haven't covered. It is towards the end of the early Meccan period, and the beginning of the middle Meccan period and which as we know from Surah Taha that uh, it was right on the cusp of the escalation in of Meccan persecution of Muslims And the most intriguing thing about Surah Dukhan is the reference to smoke, and a reference, as we will see, to human addiction to a certain type of doubt. which then raises the question of the connection, possible connections between reference to smoke and certain types of doubt that human beings are addicted to. And this doubt is what the Quran refers to as playful doubt, yeah maybe a better translation as we'll see would be um uh, i don't a, a um we'll describe it as we come to it but i I'm, I'm searching for for an an english equivalent and i'm not it's not occurring to me but it is a, a, a it's it's a A doubt in which you are addicted to the state of doubt. Your your state of being becomes um, a a non-committal state and you are addicted to being uncommitted and to use doubt in a speculative but not serious fashion it is not it is not uh, the type of skepticism that leads to a deeper inquiry and deeper knowledge of things but a type of skepticism that is there for its own sake okay So let, let's jump in with the rather numerous things that the surah raises and try to take them one at a time. So first the surah starts out with Hamim and as we said before, these There there's several chapters in the quran that start with these letters hamim and these soar are known as the hawamim they're referred to as the hawamim and the hawamim collectively have often been referred to as the heart of the quran or soul of the quran because of their nature of the, the type of message they deliver There is a great deal, as we've talked about before, about the meaning of Hamim, but uh, in the context of Surat al-Dukhan, you find a, 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 rich, a, a rich discourse on what Hamim refers to in the context of Surat al-Dukhan. And among, I, uh, Rami, can I ask you uh, one of these weird questions? Is there is there any way that I can, like, uh, you, you see how I can't, like, I have to move this around to read it? This hair looks nice. Oh! What? Amazing. Okay. Let me shrink that for you. A bit. Is that, is that That's too great. Small? Yeah, no, no, it's good. Okay. Wow. Wow. Amazing. I struggled with this all night last night, and Rami just did it in two seconds. So depressing. It's like, uh, it's like you know, the magicians of the Pharaoh. You know they do things beyond human comprehension. I'm not, I'm not a magician. You're not. You're not the magician. I the people who made this are the magicians. <laughs> <laughs> you, you just you just learn their magic so you can defeat them. But, <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well. Okay. So. Uh, Among the most remarkable things that emerged in our tradition uh, is uh, people like a Kosheri say that the ha refer to the rights of God, haqq, haqq al But the meme refers to muhabbat al-ilah, to the love of God. And that the Qashiri among the scholars who said, if you, if if you study the hawameen, you will notice that Allah is always reminding you in the surah of that the rights of the divine exist, but that the love of the divine exists, the love exists, and that Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahman makes God's love a priori or a prevailing over God's rights, so among the traditions that are often narrated about Surah al dukhan the in a in a long narrative where the Prophet is asked about what al dukhan means, and so on. So, and we'll, we'll cover parts of of that narrative, but. Um the Prophet ﷺ says sees a woman clutching on uh, holding her baby, and the Prophet ﷺ sa- says, Do you see the, the way this woman is holding to, tightly to her baby protectively? And they they say yes, and The Prophet says, Allah's love is greater than the love of this woman towards her baby. That in in fact, the way Allah feels about human beings is, the presumption is one of deep compassion and mercy And but for, but for the demands of justice and the necessity of justice, God's mercy would preempt all and God's love would preempt all. As we will see in Surah al-Dukhan that, however, if we exclude God's justice, in other words, if God's justice does not have an effect, then the entire creation would cease to have meaning. It would become an act of vanity rather than an act of meaning. So among the, the well, people like Kosheri and there there are, I mean, I, I this is practically in every Sufi Tafsir. Among the the reference or among the things that Hamim connotes. is Allah telling us, if you want to understand what I am conveying to you, understanding is not possible unless you first reflect upon الله, the, the ethics of what you owe the divine, the mandates and a priori requirements of justice. But second, you feel the love of Allah, الله, that you will never understand anything about your Lord unless you access the love of your Lord, and among them. So, uh, for instance, it says, "Walmim ila mauddateh, la shay ahabu ilay, la shay min min, لا شيء إلي من لقاء أحبابي ولا ولا أحب على أحبابي so and among this is that if you understand Allah's love, you also understand that Allah loves our return to the, the divine. and if you are able to access that, then you will love meeting the divine as much as the divine will love meeting you. So, and this is the, the, the at the heart of the entire um, impulse in, in the Islamic tradition, that the highest attainment, as Allah says in the Quran, we, That you would be among those who can gaze upon the divine, meeting the divine as the highest level of attainment. There's a lot, a lot more, but. Um we, we need to take it in, in steps. So for instance, um uh they, they talk about if the um Hadithul Arwah uh well uh well ala um Mayadin Mahabhabatihi wa humum al Arwah Fi Asrarihi and it it goes on to They they go on to a greater depth in this type of discourse. But for our purposes, I think we will take it in pieces. Otherwise, it will be too much. Okay. So, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala starts off by saying, pay attention. In this faith journey in the heart of Islam and as we will see it is the Islam that has repeatedly been reaffirmed by Allah across numerous gener- generations. The key is haq and mahabba is the rights of the divine and the love of the divine and right after that wal kitab al-mubin wal kitab the study quran translated translates it as the clear book but what kita will be if you want a more precise translation it will be and the clarifying book or the book that makes things clear the book that differentiates between the divine and what is not divine inna anzalnahu fi laylatin mubarakatin inna kunna mundhirin fiha yufraqu kullu amrin hakim in the qira'at either yufraqu or yafriqu kullu kullu amrin hakim amran min indina إِنَّا كُنَّا مُرْسَلِينَ رَحْمَةً مِنْ رَبِّكَ إِنَّا هُوَ السَّمِيعُ الْعَلِينَ So, let's just first take the translation. So, the clarifying book, the book that makes things clear, which Allah is swearing by, we sent it on a blessed night ليلة في fi مباركة. sanctified blessed night inna kunna because we will always sending a warning now here as we will see it, 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 Inna kunna we have repeatedly sent the same warning. Time and again, therein Fiha Hakim. In this message, every wise or every matter of wisdom, every matter that requires sagacious wisdom is made clear. So this is not just a message that is telling you Um, believe in God but otherwise your value system is not affected. When it tells you that this is a message the foundation for every matter of wisdom every sagacious matter. Of course it didn't escape the interpretation of the Quran that Every sagacious matter is not talking about the technicalities of law. That comes much later with the Khashawiyah and the Wahhabis and so on, that say, well, every sagacious matter just means the whatever the, te- the mechanics of law are. But every sagacious matter is the value system upon which human life ought to be based. The differentiation between what is good, what is hasan, and what is not good, what is qabih So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling the early Muslims, as Allah is telling us today, This is a message that is life-defining. It is not marginal. Don't treat it as a marginality. It is life-defining, but at the same time, it is the same message that Allah has repeatedly sent time and again to human beings. Importantly, this message in Surah al-Dukhan, as in many surah, is always described by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as irahma, as a mercy. So this is a mercy. Understanding that you live according to the values of this message is a gift of mercy because without it, you have the absence of mercy. It's like saying, if you don't learn what I'm teaching you, you will live ignorant and suffer the consequences of your ignorance for the rest of your life. But there is an normative connotation to this. There's an normative connotation to this as it occurs repeatedly, as we inshallah will see in the Quran, that Allah's message can never become a vehicle for cruelty. Now, if you understand haqqullah, the rights of God, you understand mahabbatullah, the love of God, that must inform your understanding of Rahmatullah, the mercy of God. Those who say we have faith, but all they've ever dealt with is Hakkullah, the rights of God, but have never developed beyond that, to muhabbatullah, the love of God, will have no idea what rahmatullah, what mercy of God is. So when you tell them the Prophet ﷺ was sent as a mercy unto humanity or that this message was sent as a mercy unto humanity, they have no comprehension of that because they've never developed beyond the rights, the hukuk. The so of course it's not surprising that al-Qushayri like so like many others like Jilani and Ibn Arabi and so on is very critical of jurists fuqaha who have learned the realm of hukuk, but in their training at, in law as legalists had never developed beyond that into the realm of mahabbatullah, and so they don't understand Rahmatullah, mercy of Allah. So Lord of the heavens and the earth and whatsoever is between them رَبِّ السَّمَوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضُ وَمَا بَيْنَهُمَا إِنْ كُنْتُمْ مُقْنِينَ Now, this gets us even closer to the purpose of Surah Al-Dukhan. The Lord of the heavens and the earth and what is between them, إِنْ كُنْتُمْ مُقْنِينَ If, in fact, you have certitude. Why does in Surah Al Dukhan Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala challenge those who are receiving the surah by saying, in kuntum If in fact you have certitude. And when Allah says, the Lord of the heavens and the earth and what is between them, Allah is calling upon you to reflect on thoroughly upon all of the layers of creation. The heavens and the earth and what is between them, often in Qur'anic reference, is, an, a, is a reference to what dwells inside. It is as also in the Quran when Allah says, "Look into and in, fi anfusikum inside yourselves." If you just keep in mind this this challenge, if you have certitude, in kuntum mukni, la ilaha illa huwa yuhi wa yumit, Rabbukum. Wa aba ekumul awaleen. Allah, no God but Allah, who gives life and death, your Lord, and the Lord of your forefathers. But what is the issue? Bell, whom فِي شَكْن يَلْعَبُونَ Nay, but they are, it's translated the study Quran, they are playing in doubt. fee شَكْن يَلْعَبُونَ The expression is remarkable because to have Shek, to have doubt, is one thing. But what does it mean to have playful doubt? Obviously, the Quran is not talking about we're having doubt to have fun. The Arabic expression is remarkable. Fi shekkin yal'abun. So they are, their, their path is the path of doubt. But the doubt in itself is vain, it's a form of vanity because the doubt is designed. to enable the self to submit or to enable the self not to submit to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so it is like when I am determined to invoke doubt even if if I truly, if I was willing to engage you in 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 a serious philosophical discussion, you could prove or demonstrate to me my contradictions and my paradoxes, and I might not be able to defend my doubt. But this type of doubt, a laim, is a doubt it's a doubt for the purpose of vanity. So it runs away from any effort to pin it down and demonstrate its own vanity. So it's a doubt that if it reflects upon creation, it reflects upon creation only to confirm its own doubts. If it talks about Allah's rights or love or mercy, it does so only to confirm its own doubts. It is a doubt committed to doubt. It is a philosophy of life. But what is the purpose of this philosophy of life? People much better than I am centuries ago said, well, it is to protect your privileges and your immunities. What you've granted yourself as your, you know, my, my sacred zones, my rights and entitlements. And I really don't want to forego any of my rights and entitlements because I feel entitled. And so the way I'm going to protect my rights and entitlements is that I will develop my skills at raising doubts. And at the same time, I am committed to not resolving any of these doubts. So even if the most brilliant mind comes to me and says, let's discuss these doubts and let's lay them out logically and honestly, I am alive. I am. I am in fact just playing. So, I will avoid and escape the entire situation because I do not want a resolution to my doubts. With this. The Prophet was being alerted, as were of course the believers. There is there are people who have legitimate doubts that they're trying to resolve because these doubts stand as logical, legitimate obstacles to belief. But there are people who raise doubts and regardless of what you do to resolve these doubts, they're committed to these doubts. And of course, as the sofiisk traditions tend to do, is say, always ask yourself, There's the doubt, but there's the motive behind the doubt. Always ask yourself if your doubt truly emerges from an unresolved intellectual issue that you are sincerely trying to find an answer to, or if your doubt is merely a mechanism to protect your privileges and your immunities and whatever you granted yourself as your entitlements. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going back a little bit because I forgot. Um, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Allah yukhi wa La ilaha illa huwa Allah is the one that gives life and death. The Lord of the heavens and the earth and what is between them. In uh, what what is often referred to as ta'wilat al-najmiiyah, or uh, it it could be that reference often is to a certain tafsir known as a a, a tafsir al-najmi, or or sometimes it just refers to a methodology of tafsir, but. In Surah al-Dukhan, as in, in several other surahs, they say, be alert that when Allah says, gives life and death, that it is not just living or dying in the, the superficial sense, but That there is giving life to hearts with the love of Allah. Those hearts that are able to love Allah, it's as if they come to life. While at the same time, hearts that remain resistant to the love of Allah, these are the hearts that effectively die and the the reason they raise this is precisely because that these are the hearts that become like the hearts of an addict, but addicted to protecting the delusions of the self, the desires of the self, and protecting it by constantly saying, I have doubts. But not really wanting to resolve any of these doubts. Okay. So then, so what happens? For Tokib Yoma Tati Samao Bidukhanin Mubin Yogshan Nas Haza Ayabun Aleem Rabbana Ikshif Anna Lazab. In a mukminu mukminun Anna lahum zikra, wakaja ahum rasulun Mubin summa tawalu anu, wakalu, moan majnun. So wait for Takib yo matati sama obdokhan mubeen. This is verse 10. So, wait or keep watch for a day when the sky brings forth Dukhan smoke Mubeen. A clarifying smoke. Now note, there's something interesting, right? The Quran is described as kitabun mubin, a clarifying book. And the smoke is described as duchanul mubin, a clarifying smoke. But what is this clarifying smoke? Is it referring and the grammar the grammatical st- structure of the sentence is fascinating because it says wait until the day where the 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 sama will come with dukhanun mubin so is it talking about a future event or is it talking about an event that took place at the time of the prophet Or can it have a further meaning, a deeper meaning than that? So, some said, well, this reference to the Khan will be in, there is a narrative that at the time of the Prophet, a severe drought struck Mecca. And the drought was so bad that people would, when, when, the, when, you know, the effects of heat, if you're in the desert, you, you think you are seeing like a, a mirage, like vapor. Of course, when you approach it, you find that it's just heat, the delusions of heat. And that it was so bad that it was as if people were seeing smoke vapor. And that they went to the Meccans went to the Prophet and said, Pray for us that Allah would end this drought. And if you do that we will be Muslims. And he prayed for for Allah to end the drought. The drought ended, and of course they didn't come through, they, they, you know, reneged on their promise. This story, uh, although reported very widely, nearly in all the tafasir, is weak. And it's very likely that it never happened. Um, There are many, many issues with um, this narrative and, and, and when it appeared. and Others, of course, said, well, this maybe is talking about one of the things that will transpire before the end of days. That among the things that will happen before the end of time is that there will be some type of smoke, that will be toxic, that will contribute to killing off life. But of course, the reference, the the linguistic expression, Dukhanul Mubin, is a clarifying or distinguishing smoke is very interesting here. And why does Allah talk about that people will plead with God to ease their suffering and that Allah indeed will ease their suffering, but that they always renege. This gives a way to a long discussion about the very heart of the surah, the reference to the smoke. And what is this smoke? The Sufi-esque tradition. بسد فرق الدخان دخان الحس وظلمة الأسباب تغشى قلوب الناس فتحجبهم عن شمس العرفان وهذا عذاب أليم موجع للقلب And then he goes on to cite evidence. And this is the the, the meaning, as I'll explain, inshallah, the meaning that I think is at the heart of Surah Al-Dukhan. Allah warns of isama' filled with smoke, but smoke that has a function. That smoke is like an alarm system, an alarm system for something wrong, something that induced the smoke. And the passage that I just read, it says that the sama here is, which is by the way, often uh, um, the sama is often said understood as a, as a metaphor to the sama'un the, nafs, the, the heavens within, as well as the heavens without, that there is a heaven within, and the heaven within can be filled with smoke. If you've ever heard my halakhas on the uh, fog, uh, what was it called, the fog? Oh, fog of that the heaven within can be filled with a foggy smoke. If you are paying attention, that foggy smoke in fact is like an alarm system that goes off within the self telling you that you need fixing that, in fact, something is off within. Now, how do you know you have that fog within? Typical symptomology of this fog, restlessness, avoidance, discomfort with the self, constant anxiety and depression. You're fundamentally uncomfortable with who you are. You don't like being without distractions. You find that your mind consistently is attracted to doubt. But it is not that you invest a lot of time in trying to investigate your doubts or seriously studying your doubts. It is not that you actually try to do what doubt was created for. You know, Allah created doubt so that human beings can grow. But that's not the way you use doubt. You use doubt simply to remain static and undeveloped. You use doubt often as a way to, in a narrative of self-victimization, that you're always the victim or that you're always the aggrieved party or that you're always the party that is misunderstood, but fundamentally you live within that realm of smoke, that fog. And that fog means that you're often restless, depressed, anxious, and at times it becomes too much and you, in fact, turn to Allah. And for as, for as long as it lasts, you perhaps even worship and raise your hands and say, Allah, help me. But here is the rub, is that when, in fact, Allah does help you, you go back to your same habits again and again. You might come closer to Allah for a short while, but you return back to living in a foggy heaven, literally in a foggy Samoet. So Sahel, who is one of the Tabiyis successors, said A duhan and إشارة إلى مراقبة سماء القلب عن تصاعد الدخان أو صاف البشرية الذي يغشى الناس عن شواهد الحق فهذا هو العذاب الأليم لأرباب المشاهدة so, was reading from, was saying is that it's not only that this fog leaves you in a confused state addicted to doubt but that ultimately it hardens your heart to qalb Is cruelty of heart. Your heart, even if you intellectually want to, is unable to love your maker. But I'll tell you even more, in the Sufi-esque traditions, they say that if you don't love your maker, you think that you love others, but in fact you don't know what love is. That what love of Allah teaches you is mercy, empathy, and sacrifice. Those who don't know what the love of the divine is, and say they love, what they often love is selfishness. They're selfish. And in fact, a relationship with the other that only serves their desires and promotes themselves. At this stage in my life, I tend to agree that um, a lot of people talk about love, but it's very rare to, to see, there, there is love as a sacred, as a sacred value that Allah has created and that type of pure, clean love is rarely seen among human beings unless they purify the soul and cleanse the self. What we often call love are forms of attachments and addictions and dependence, and uh, various ways that we connect with each other because we need each other. But that type of elevated, what the Sufi tradition considers real love, the only real love, is really indeed rare. Going back to the time of the Prophet and what Allah knows about the way Surah Dukhan will be received, as of course as well as the other uh, revelation. Because remember, Dukhan comes right after Taha, and the Shara is going to come after Dukhan. That a quick reference. that instead of paying attention to what in fact the teachings of the prophet what the prophet teaches this is 14 what what do they muallimon majnun that this prophet, or they, they try to dismiss this prophet, Mu'allamun Majnoon, that, oh yeah, he, he knows stuff, but it doesn't matter because he's a it he, 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 It is sort of the most arrogant and dismissive way. You can deal with a knowledgeable person. Because mu'allamun is, is, is a concession that yes, this person knows a lot. But what is it that you're saying about this person? Majnun could be, oh, it's just crazy, or unreasonable, or wants too much, or possessed d- demonically. All of it would fit is like saying well oh this is you know this is this is too crazy at this point as we know from the quranic style it consistently draws our attention to the movement of history and what happens in the story of humanity and this reference is a quick one. It's not a very detailed reference, but a reference to again the people of the Pharaoh. Wa ala Allah. You are the affliction of the people of the Pharaoh. Is their ego? Is their sense of entitlement al uloo Hey, uh, this is um, nineteen, and so uh, the study Quran translates it: "And rise not against God. Truly, I have come to you with a manifest authority." It's not when I talk Allah is not rise not against God, but a it, it, it clear reference. to to, to the people's arrogance and their sort of high and mighty attitude that makes them resistant to hearing any type of message. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is reminding the Prophet of the previous messages that Allah consistently said, sent um, that before you Moses tried to warn these people not to rely on their egos. And that in fact, Moses even said that what in the us to and your this is 20 when uh, that the reference here in, in in 20 don't stone me it's it's too literal it's like saying uh, a Rajm could be stoning, but a Rajm was often also used in language to mean any form of condemnation and boycott. So it is like Moses is telling them that I know that you could either stone me physically or stone me by maligning me and slandering me and cutting off all venues to listening to me because Raj was often considered the way that you boycott a member of society who had done wrong. So you you cut that member off. You don't speak to them. You don't sell anything to them. You don't buy anything to them. That was all within, it's a, it's a sort of a public shaming and condemnation. That was all part of the institution of Rajm. It wasn't necessarily just throwing stones. Often, we know that people were, were sentenced to Rajm without stoning. In other words, they were condemned and shunned, but not no stones were thrown at them. The shunning itself, is known as Raj. So it is Moses is telling them, you know, even if you have, if you deal with me by shunning, there will be no way that I can reach you and no way that you can hear from me. And At a minimum, if you don't follow me, fa''tazilun. At a minimum, if you don't follow me, don't harm me. In our language today, it's like saying, Respect my right to say my peace without persecuting me, without shunning me. Now, of course, it is, consider this, if the Qur'an is saying this to the Prophet, is the Qur'an telling us something about public morality, that perhaps people have a right to at least speak without being molested? that an evil society is a society that doesn't allow people to at least speak their mind? Because here, Moses is telling them effectively, part of your sin is that you're not just allowing me to speak my mind without hurting me. And definitely, part of what the Meccans are consistently condemned for is that it's not just that they don't believe the Prophet, but that they won't allow the Prophet just to speak. Now, the reason I flag this is that as we say the Quran, as I consistently say, the Quran is a continuing revelation at a constant a, a a perpetual book of ethics there there embedded in the text of the Quran is a clear public ethic about a moral society versus an immoral society and remember that as we will see inshallah repeatedly the Quran is extremely hostile to the idea of coercion. At a minimum, if Muslims are learning from the Quran public values, that people have a right to speak without being harmed. And of course, you know, an Islamophobe somewhere will say, Oh, even if if what they're saying is that they don't believe in Islam? Yeah, even if if what they're saying is they don't believe in Islam. That's not the issue. The issue is that it is part of human dignity that people have the right to speak without being harmed. Even if what they're saying is, I don't believe but also if what they're saying is, I believe. So as I said on the khutbah, for instance, when I gave the khutbah where I talked about Noel Sadawi, Noel Sadawi clearly is an atheist. I mean, if you read her work, you know she's an atheist. She wrote a book about how God, the, the, the devil meets God, and the the devil basically corners God into confronting how God is so impotent; God is unable to solve the problems of the world. And in her book, uh, titled something like "The God Resigns" (الإله uh, the devil, you know, basically has this conversation with God, and the devil tells God, "You know, see, you've messed everything up. You can't solve anything." And at the end of Nour Sa'dawi's book, God resigns because God says, "Okay, yeah, you're right, devil. I've screwed up everything." I'm a horrible god and resigns. Now, now, he doesn't write this because she's a believing Muslim. She wrote this because she's an atheist. For all those idiot, moron Muslims who've never read anything by her who say, oh, but she was a reformer of women's rights. No, she was an atheist. Yeah, I mean, maybe she spoke for women's rights if you believe that that's what she did. But, not from an Islamic perspective. Don't Islamize her she was a proud atheist you know and she that's up to allah whether allah you know respects her principle or not that's up to allah i don't interfere in that but uh, from from a principle point of view i don't have a problem with nawal al Is right to speak without being harmed of course she has the right to speak without being harmed i have a problem with a government in Egypt, that bans anyone from responding to Nawal al Saadawi. So, any Islamist doesn't have the right to be interviewed just to respond to Nawal al Saadawi, that gives Nawal al Saadawi an uncontested privilege of appearing in, on TV and media and speaking and so on but jails Islamists if they try to speak. That's what I have a problem with. How did I get into that point? <laughs>
0: Free speech.
1: Freedom, freedom of speech. Oh, yeah, freedom of speech. I'm just, I don't know. You know, she, the woman wrote 47 books. If, you know, either you read her books and know what she's actually saying, or just trust someone like me who, re- who actually reads her books. You know, I've taken the trouble to read 17 of the 47 books. It got very repetitive because she's always saying the same thing. So I stopped after 17. But I'm so tired of these kids that go on social media. They've never read anything. And they start just spewing and pontificating and oh we're a muslim feminist and she must have been a muslim feminist no she was not a muslim and she was in my idea on the wrong side side of feminism she wanted to legalize prostitution without saying one word about human trafficking not one word about all the human trafficking that takes place in egypt or the human trafficking that takes place in the Emirates. Or in Saudi in her long career she lived 90 years 47 books not one word about human trafficking in Egypt or Saudi or the emirate but she wanted to legalize prostitution you know I was just so tired of ignorant idiots that love to pontificate okay fine there <laughs> are my sisters Go back to surat. Surat al-Dukhan, the smoke. (laughs) The smoke that compels so many people to go on social media and just pontificate. (laughs) They live, they breathe smoke, they exist in smoke, they sleep in smoke, they wake up in smoke, they are smoke. They are actually not real, they are just smoke. Do you know when you become just smoke? You are smoke. You know what? Let's take two minutes. I need to calm down. Okay, we pray us. That will calm me down. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Bismillah rahman rahim So, among the, the, the nice way of putting it, um, in referring to the Dukhan, and the reference in Surah to dukhan to the Dukhan, to the, to the smoke, or the fog says um Yushir Ilamuraqat Sama il Kalb Antosa al Duchan al Sofil Basharia and this is a, a, a translating it is a is a little bit so Sama al Qalb the that you within each of us is a heaven and I said that this is a, a staple in in Sufi perception of things, but not just Sufi because it went beyond, well beyond just the a Sufi a school of thought. But that within the heaven of the heart, if you imagine that your heart is situated in its heaven. There are numerous vanities to what a human being away from the Lord can be. So you have the divine essence within. The divine essence situated in its divine source is in harmony and peace because you know that you yourself you're not divine but you are an extension of the divine but when you lose sight of the fact that you are an extension of the divine and you become like um, a, 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 a what do you call that thing when like you have um, renegade like a like a thing that goes off on its own then you have all these tendencies the love of creation the love of invention the belief in autonomy the belief in liberty the belief in 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 your own ego all of these are what makes us special but also what makes us dangerous now unrestrained and unbalanced without the Mizan, without the balance, these tendencies cloud the heavens of your soul. And Tosa al Alsofir Basharia with this the, the, the statement is that as these cloud the heavens of the soul, the idea and the method and the way to mohabbatillah, to actually love where you're, it's like like a child who has forgotten their own mother. Um, And that child has been spun off to learn again what motherhood means and what being a child to a mother means becomes very alien. And, And of course then the consequences of that, that set in. Okay, so we've reached the reference to Pharaoh. so then when Moses is telling the or at least in Surah Dukhan it is paraphrasing the feelings and the statements that Moses either makes or feels that at least if you are not going to follow me then don't be a transgressor don't harm me And then, when Allah tells Moses, lead your followers at night. And this is the escape from the, the clutches of Pharaoh's persecution. And this remarkable expression that so many commentators pause that, whatruk innahum jundun it's literally it's like saying leave the sea in a in its solid state you, let me see how they translate how they translate it Yeah, and uh, uh, and the, uh, the study of Quran says, "Leave the sea at rest. Truly, they will be a drowned host. Leave the sea. Rahu, and it's it's like don't disturb its state. Now, what is this a reference to? At the 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 most basic level, is that Moses." the sea parts moses crosses and moses doesn't want the forces of the pharaoh pursuing them so moses thinks of striking the the sea with a stick so that the the sea would close and there would be a water barrier but Allah inspires Moses to in fact leave the sea the way it is. And here is where a lot of commentators pause to think of, and we've encountered this in a different form, but every time the Quran is inviting us to reflect upon something, it is for a reason. The mentality and the psychology of Pharaoh and his followers, those who see the sea has parted, and instead of saying, well, wait, if Moses can part the sea like this, do we really want to be pursuing Moses anymore? I mean, but to have the actual delude itself to say, well, you know what, Let they've crossed the sea, let's cross right after them. Now, what's interesting is that whether you, you believe that this was all, you know, a, a, a physical occurrence or that this is a metaphorical story, the point is the psychology of those who are so determined to defy God that they are able to rely on their vain doubts even after they see something like the parting of the sea, so the most clear, dispositive proof, but yet they still will not believe. And still the soldiers of the pharaoh will obey the pharaoh. As so many then say, well, there are, we ourselves could become so determined, so addicted to the art of doubt, that it's no longer a matter of proof. <laughs> but even when doubt is leading us to the very same type of destruction, like the drowned host, we still cling on to it. Even when we've become thoroughly miserable human beings with our doubt. And I've, in, in, in life, I've seen this. I've seen uh, Muslims who've turned to atheism who have become thoroughly miserable, unbearable human beings. Miserable with their family, miserable with their friends, miserable in their life. I even know someone who eventually killed himself, but at so many points, and this guy that killed himself, I often wondered, he was one of my colleagues. your doubt is driving you to utter misery to the point that you don't want to live anymore but yet you refuse to see anything anything that might actually make you less less miserable you're so committed to the meaninglessness of our existence to the idea that you are pointless and I am a pointless and everything is pointless. Material things have stopped bringing you happiness a long time ago, a long time ago. But you are so invested in your ego to the point that you are willing to destroy yourself rather than concede anything. It it is remarkable. So, for instance, now, this is... um, So, one of the commentators says, I think this is. I'm. Mean, I'm not sure, but I think this is from Says, "كل زمان له فراعين يحبسون الناس عن طريق الله وعن خدمته. فيبعث الله فيهم أن يذكرهم ويأمرهم بتخليت سبيلهم أو بأداء الحقوق الواجب عليهم. فإذا." كُلِّبَ الداعي قَالُ وَإِنْ لَمْ تُؤْمِنُوا فَاَعْتَزِلُونَ فَإِذَا أيت مِنْ إِقْبَالِهِمْ دع عَلَيْهُمْ فَيَغْرُقُونَ فِي بَحْرِ الْهَوَى وَيَهْلُكُونَ فِي أَوْدِيَةِ الْخَوَاطِرِ So he says that in every age every age has its pharaohs, the high and mighty and the arrogant and when Allah sends those that try to reform and try to call them to their conscience, often not only do they resist, but they actually hurt those who they persecute, those who try to reform. To the point that the reformers are forced into a state of being like Moses, of saying, well, at least if you're not going to follow me, just don't harm me. But that ultimately what happens is that while the pharaohs that come after the pharaoh do not drown in the Red Sea, but they drown nonetheless, and they drown in their own hawa, in their own vanities. And means in the chaos of ideas. They are always in possession of a carnival of ideas, but they are committed to none of them. They are only committed to ideas to the extent that these ideas serve their egos. And they use ideas as they serve their egos and dispose of ideas once they no longer serve their egos. And that is one of the ways that you see the earmark of a pharaoh. Lack of principles. Lack of commitment to truth. Lack of commitment to anything. Okay. And ولقد اخترناهم على علم على العالمين واتيناهم من, من الايات ما فيه بلاء مبين ان هؤلاء يقولون ان هي الا موتتنا الاولى وما نحن بمنشرين فاتوا بابائنا ان كنتم صادقين so here, then, this is, uh, oh, I forgot what it the The reference of the Quran about after um, the wealth that the Pharaoh and his followers built and left behind, and the Quran just reminds you of how often human beings accumulate wealth and then leave it behind, and that others literally inherit this wealth. Um, and I, I, I should have forgotten. On 29 Okay. The heavens and the earth, and thus we begin to. Uh, neither the heavens nor the earth wept for them, nor were they granted respite. Human ego. Often makes a living being, the living human, find it difficult to imagine that there is that existence is without them. So I am sitting here, I am me, but it takes a remarkable discipline of the ego to know that the me that I am is not any more entitled to the air that I breathe than the you that you are. Put differently, it is Within my egoism, it is very difficult to actually understand that you, whoever you are, you're not just a physical form that I perceive, but you are fully a being of equal merit and weight to the I that I am all of us perceive the world from where we are. And the reason that we perceive the world from where we are is that we're so embedded in our own ego that it is extremely difficult for us to imagine that we have no greater legitimacy or greater right than the other being sitting next to us. But the ego that is anchored in the self becomes so deluded that it imagines that as if the world is not going to go on without it. And so when Allah r- remarks, وَمَا بَكَتْ عَلَيْهِمُ السَّمَاءُ the heavens and the earth didn't cry over them. That it's as if Allah is saying you imagined that you are everything and because you imagined you are everything you thought that what you feel and what you want is legitimate enough justification. But in fact you could be removed from the face of this earth and the earth hardly notices, in fact doesn't notice you. But there is another thing, is there is a hadith to the Prophet ﷺ that says that those who are truly pious and it's this is this is one of those hadiths that Sufis write a great deal about and that the scholar and the worshiper, al-abid wal when they leave the earth, whether human beings cry over them or not, the soul of the earth and the soul of the heavens mourn their loss. It is As if Allah is saying, consider your true role and weight as you tread upon this earth. Because the pharaohs will always imagine that they are the end all, the the beginning of all, and the end all. But in the true measure of things, they're not. Okay. So, Heavens and the earth did not weep over them, and they were not given respite. And we saved the Israelites and we chose them and we knowingly chose them. Now here, this is an Islamic theology, a an important point. The Israelites, there's a, a long line of prophets that came through the descendants of Israel. And of course, there are the descendants of Judah. And for a period of time, the line of prophets that came through the descendants of Israel were the bearers of monotheism. the question in islamic theology in in uh, let me sorry let me rephrase that In, in islamic theology what became what the problem was with what the israelites did is that they turned the message of monotheism into a tribal selection. And when they've done so, so in other words, they, they've said, because we are the descendants of Israel, we are chosen not because we are the bearers of monotheism, but because we are the descendants of Israel. And, and we have a promised land because we are A particular genealogy, and when they did so, they were no longer chosen. Now, in this, the most unnerving reading that you read in the Islamic tradition are the writings that warn Muslims of the same fate that Muslims were also told that you were an ummah that was picked, chosen in order to bear witness. But what happens if this ummah becomes like the Israelites, that believes that they are entitled to merit just because they are who they are rather than because of the ethical function they perform? Because Allah says, as in the same way Allah unchose the Israelites because of what they've done to the message, Allah could very easily unchose you and replace you with others. Okay. Now, then the Quran refers to Qawm Tubba and Qawm Tubba, the people of Tubba. Uh, let's see how we translate. 27. No, wait. Is it 27? 30. Oh, yeah. Bring us to your if you are truthful. Are they better, or the people of Tubba and those before them, we destroyed them, truly they were guilty. The people of Tubba were of the uh, Hamorite dynasty of rulers in Yemen. And they were eventually, that kingdom, the Hamorite kingdom, was eventually destroyed by the Assyrians in the fourth century uh, AD. but the reference to Kong Tuba in particular uh, is a reference to one of the rulers of Tuba that reportedly brought his people the monotheism of Moses, in other words, Judaism, and that they followed him until his death. But once he died, they abandoned the monotheism of Tubba and returned to idol worship. And that whether they were destroyed by a natural disaster or destroyed by a Sharian invasion, repeatedly the Quran tells you, reflect on the fact that people, kingdoms, rise and fall in learning from the ethical lessons of history to, to, if Muslims would have invested in the modern age on a methodology for studying ethics from history, they would have made a very serious contribution to the way people do history in the modern age. Because right now, that is truly missing from the way that we deal and we wrestle with history. Anyway. Okay. وَمَا خَلَقْنَا السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ وَمَا مَا خَلَقْنَاهُمْ إِلَّا بِالْحَقِّ وَلَكِنْ أَكْثَرُهُمْ لا يعلمون. We have not created the heavens and the earth and what is between them in vanity. But we created the heavens and earth and what is between them in truth, بالحق. So, what would make creation an act of vanity? If Allah created us and whatever we did on this earth had no consequence, in other words, there is no accountability. The Jews of the time insisted that there is no heaven and earth. And the only reward is in the here now, and the only punishment in the, is in the here now. The absence, the idea of a heaven and hell among the Jews of the time of the Prophet was largely absent. But this is revealed in Mecca long before Muslims come into full contact with Jews in Medina. But Allah is alerting and underscoring that if there were no consequences to what we do on this earth, that in fact creation would be an act of vanity because it would have no meaning. Whatever you do or not do has no meaning beyond its immediate functionality. But then ask yourself: Well, what is the ultimate meaning of functionality? If and this this is a you know so a, a, a if there is no God and or if there is a God but no consequences, why does it make any real difference? if I take care of my family or not take care of my family. If I can, if after all, the world only exists through my subjective perception and I find an opportunity to improve my affairs at the expense of my family, and let's say I'm not an emotional guy. It it doesn't hurt me to see my members of my family sad. What's going to stop you? This insistence is a repeated theme in the Quran That if you are in doubt, and if you want to be consistent with your doubt, not playful with your doubt, but consistent with your doubt, then you will have to concede that there is no point to anything. Because there is no meaning in anything. It is all a coincidence and happenstance and the very foundations of virtue doesn't exist. So creation Omacha Loknahuma that we've only created them in truth what is this truth Muslim theologians centuries ago discussing well, the truth is the very principle of justice that gives everything meaning in our existence on earth. Okay. Inna yawm al-fasli miqatum ajma'in yawm la yughni mawla and mawla shay'an wa la hum Sarun illa man rahim Allah, innahu huwa al Rahim. rahim The, the 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 decisive moment the decisive time is al Fas, the day where of judgment, where no one can avail another, and we all stand before the mercy of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, and then. In Surah Al-Dukhan, there will be a short description of what hellfire is, or what happens in hellfire, and a short description of what happens in heaven. If you look at forty-nine, look inna ka antal azizul kareem. So. there is this unpleasant description of punishment, but the Quran comments on this, this is on, um, what did I say, 49? For Narcissus, taste surely you are the mighty and noble. Of course, this is sarcasm. But it deserves a pause. You've lived the whole notion of playful doubt or vain doubt was to protect the ego. And you've lived in service of this ego holding on to an entirely meaningless existence because you did not put the creator of existence in the creator's place and the meaning that derives from the creator of existence in its proper place. You've lived allowing the fog, the smoke, to grow in the way it grows. And as long as you attained fulfillment of the ego and here and there. Now, that... Harsh comment. Okay, so you've lived in service of this ego. Now confront where it has taken you. You've ignored the signs of danger within yourself. Now confront what happens to this false sense of dignity. Uh, Most, of course, there's a literal meaning to these verses, but what's in a lot of the Quranic commentaries, what's um, fascinating Here's an example is the non-literal meaning. He says, "...خذوه فادفعوه إلى سواء الجحيم. ...وهي نار القطيع والبعد. ...ثم صبوا فوق رأسه من هموم الدنيا. ...وشغب الخوض والخواطر. ...ذق إنك أنت العزيز الكريم. كنت زليلاً خاملاً لذل so it says that when Allah says illa Jahim, when Allah says "send send them to Jahim," says this is the fire of a Qatia and al-Baad. This is the fire in the hereafter of realizing that you are far away, separated from your Lord the pain and agony that comes from that separation. And when Allah speaks about pour over his head in al in Sufi afs- tafsirs they'll, all, they'll always say or they, they, they always note that Azab al-hamim are all the agonies and torments that come from being away from your Lord, including all the anxieties and hardship of life in this earth. You've insisted on an arrogant, and false nobility for your ego. So suffer the consequences of that ego. Okay, and then the short description of Jannah, the only thing I'll I'll note um, is that, again, there's the literal meanings that you can, you know, couches and so on but in a lot of Sufi's tafsirs, as we've now been uh, 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 encountered in several contexts, so it says, Al Jannah, uh, Jannah uh, al al that the Jannah in truth is the, 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 the heavens of knowing what the truth is or living the truth. Of closeness to the divine and a lot of the, the 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 way that they understand the references to material things in the Quran as something that attracts the the most superficial of believers but the more you fall in love with Allah the more the only thing that will quench your longing is nearness to Allah and the knowledge of Allah. Fadla Mir Rabbi Kadali Kahu al Faud al Azim, Fainamaya Sarnahu Bili say Nikala Allahum Yatada Karun Far Takhib Innaum Murtakun. So we all of this is a gift from your Lord. And only if they would understand this is al-fawzul-azim. This is in fact the great triumph. And we facilitated all of this through your tongue, these lessons. May they remember And ultimately, ending with فرتقب إنهم مرتقبون. فرتقب is be in observance because they themselves are in a state of being observed. So. What is the main message from Surah Al Dukhan? This is a blessed message. A blessed message sent to humanity. A critical message. what is this critical message it is a message of mercy to your souls a message of self-perception and self-understanding Doubt is part of human nature. But those who become addicted to doubt, it is as if they infect the soul with a fire that generates fogs of delusion. If they ignore the fogs, Their fate is like the fate of so many that thought that the ego can be served and that meaning can be attained without the divine. But in fact, there is no meaning to existence. Without Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and, with, and without resurrection and accountability. And that if your vanity makes you think that you are the center of existence that things are right and wrong because they make you feel one way or the other, then you are exactly among those that the Quran says here, suffer the consequences because you thought, and tell Aziz al-Hakim, that you are noble and dignified. Surat al-Dukhan, after Surat Taha, is telling Muslims there is persecution coming and a severe test and you must persevere. At the same time, Those who face persecution and wither it away will be very tempted to see the world from within the perspective of the persecuted. Look what happened to us. And what happens to us defines existence. Because often that's exactly what happens to, if you've been persecuted, especially if you've been tortured. This is how you see the world. And Surat al-Dukhan, as we'll see, inshallah, and we we'll get to Surah al-Shara, because the message continues, comes and says, no, it's never about just you. Even Regardless of what you've gone through. And if you forget that, you've deviated from the path. Remarkably subtle, but thoroughly moral lesson. Some of the traditions, there's a lot of hadith that say if you read Surah Al Dukhan before you go to bed, What hadith says, uh, you know, 70 angels will will, will pray for you all night. I mean, the the part about, it's not very, but what is, what is reliable is that the Prophet very much encouraged his followers. To study and reflect upon Surah Al Dukhan. Because what it told them about what is within. And that's Surah Al Dukhan. Alhamdulillah, Rabbil